Today I interview Terry Burtz. Terry has spent over 200 days in space and was a NASA astronaut, an international space station commander, and a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Are you, where are you based right now? Are you in the, the Middle East? I'm actually in Dubai right now. Yeah. Dubai. I'm here awesome. doing some work and uh, come back in two days, but yep, in, a, in Dubai. Very cool. What, what are you, what are you up to there? You said some work. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine has a uh, aircraft company that I help him out with um, uh, basically buying and selling airplanes. And um, I'm also just doing some, Kind of remote work from home. Um, I'm working with a, a renewable diesel startup, so a renewable energy company called Endeavor Renewable Energy, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm just working from here, just doing remote work from here. <laughs> so the Zoom, the Zoom economy only from Dubai instead of Houston. Wow, I uh, I, I have some some family that has spent a lot of time there. I heard it's it's pretty interesting country, right? Oh, it's very amazing. I mean modern all these crazy buildings a very it's like an architect's dream yeah Um, i kind of wish i was an architect back in the 2000s and 2010s because there's been so much building here even still they're still building but it's yeah it's pretty amazing no it's 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 wild so so yeah i'd really love to talk more about you and about your book how to astronaut yeah um (laughs) so you you spent 200 days in space that's a lot of time uh what what was that like? <laughs> it's kind of a big question, but. Um, it, well, you got to read the book. <laughs> the, it's, so. it's like several books worth of stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the first, there's a few big themes of being in space. And one is that you're weightless and that takes time. There's a learning curve that, you know, goes up and up and up for days and weeks. And for some guys, months um, before you get really good at it, because everything floats away it's hard to move yourself from A to B without spinning yourself backwards. Um, your head hurts and you're dizzy and sick. And, you know, it's a big adjustment to go from gravity to weightless. And uh, so that's a big thing. And the other thing is, besides just work and logistics, um, when you get a minute to take a look out the window, it's, it's spectacular. Like words don't describe it beautiful for me. I, and I love photography. I love nature. I love that kind of thing. Um, I think everybody feels the same. I think, you know, some astronauts are more than others. Some get bored of it after a while and they're like, I just want to go work. Um, but uh, for me, I never got tired of it. I could have stared out the window all day, every day. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh, Cause that, that's one of the things I was thinking is I, when I think to myself of what it might, must be like to be in a spaceship for 200 days. First thing I think is like, that must be so crammed and you're in this, you know, you're in this shuttle for the better part of a year. And, you know, you, you can't go out to the park or to the mall or to hang out with friends. And it, I, it seems like it would be restrictive, but, but you're saying the opposite. You're saying it was, you, you didn't get bored. You, you could have stayed out there longer. I was worried that I was going to get, um, like cabin fever, you know, being stuck inside for so right. long. And I, I never felt that way. Huh? I, I was you know, av- after 200 days, my last flight was 200 days long <clears throat> and um, I could have stayed there for a year. I mean, I, I, I didn't have any problem. Um, and I think it was because, well, first of all, the station is pretty big. So each module is kind of its own little place. So you can move around to different places, even to different countries, the Russian segment and our segment is, is very different. Um, and I was very busy. I had meaningful, busy work to do every day. Um, and then I had my hobby, it was for photography. Um, and then you could call home. It was nice to call back to my family. And, um, so, uh, it, life on the station is pretty good. It's very busy. Uh, yeah. you got to pace it. Otherwise you'll wear yourself out and just, that's so the, not healthy. That, that's the other thing I'm thinking is like, it didn't get, it couldn't have got boring cause you're, you're doing stuff from the morning you get up right? Yeah. There's, a whole, there's a whole agenda. What was that agenda? And, like? yeah. yeah. You're not doing the same thing. The, the thing that I really liked about it is it was diverse. Every day was different. So some days I was, um, well, every day I exercise, they give you two and a half hours to exercise, which is great. I love working out. 
Um, some days uh, I did experiments, some days I did maintenance to fix stuff. Some days cargo vehicles were coming, so you have to unpack them or, or load them up, and that's a big job. Um, some days we did spacewalks, some days we did interviews like we're doing right now. And so every, every day, medical ex work on my own body. Um, so there was a lot of different stuff, which is pretty cool. What was your favorite part of being up there? Your favorite activity, favorite thing to do? It's taking pictures. I, I'm a photographer, filmmaker at heart. Um, and that was the best part about it. I, I, they, they told me when I got back that I'd taken more pictures than anybody else had ever taken. And nice. um, I could have, you know, I, people are always like, do you want to go back? And I was at NASA for 16 years. Like that's enough. Um, but I would go back. If I could make a movie, I would go back. <laughs> and you, you did, there was a film being made up there. I was a part of making an IMAX movie called a beautiful planet. I really jumped into that with both feet. I kind of took ownership of it and um, several of my crewmates helped film it and uh, worked with a lady named Tony Myers, who was, who was our director. And she taught me filmmaking and a guy named James Nyhouse. He was our director of photography. So he taught me how to use the camera and she taught me kind of the art of filmmaking and it, working with James and Tony was one of the highlights of my career for sure. I love both those guys, guys and gals. Um, and they, I, I had the chance to direct a film last year called one more orbit. It's a documentary. Um, and that, yeah, Tony was definitely my inspiration for that. And James was my director of photography on that. So, and Tony is, Tony Myers, um, she, if you've ever seen a space IMAX film going back to 1981, she directed it about Columbia, The Dream is Alive, uh, Beautiful Planet, Space Station 3D, Hubble. I think she did seven, I think, IMAX movies over a 30 year career, mm. 35 year career. And um, it was, she was amazing. And unfortunately she passed away uh, two years ago from cancer, she got, uh, pancreatic cancer, which is just awful. But um, yeah, she, she was amazing. Now, and her son is a filmmaker, so he's a good friend of mine and we stay in touch and we have some projects planned. We'll, we'll see if we can ever get them funded or not. <laughs> but it was, that was fun. That was, that, that was the most important thing I did in space, I think, was make a beautiful planet. Because hmm. that's a way to share with everyone your experience and educate yeah. people. We went to the opening at the Air and Space Museum in Washington. Uh -huh. And they told us that a million people would see our movie, you know, over the next decade or two, whatever they, you know, wow. when I was a kid, I saw a film called to fly. It was in one of the first IMAX movies in 1976 and it is spectacular. It's the coolest movie. It's still good. It's aged very well, 45 years old. Um, and they still show it, you know, not every day, but a couple times a week they show to fly. Wow. Um, so it's amazing the impact that those filmmakers had on, you know, relatively low budget documentary and 40, 45 years later, people are still watching it. I had a chance to direct a film last year called One More Orbit. We set a world record. We took off and landed from the Kennedy Space Center. We went over the North Pole and South Pole and came back and landed yeah. in less than two days. Um, it was fun. One of my Russian cosmonaut friends that I was in space with joined us, Gennady Padalka. Anyway, it was a really cool mission. I was very lucky. I was going to be one of the pilots and mm -hmm. I was too late. I didn't have time to get the training done. So I ended up being the director of this movie, um, yeah. which was really cool. That was really, really fun to do the whole process of writing it, narrating it, directing it, editing it. Editing was probably the most important part. Anyway, that was a fun, uh, that was a fun project. So. It's a fun uh, movie. If you if you like this stuff, you'll like the movie. It's, it's yeah, it's pretty fun. What, so what's your favorite space movie? I feel like there's a lot of fiction, you know, Interstellar, yeah. Gravity. Do you have a Do you have a favorite one or love uh, Love Interstellar? I watch Gravity in space actually, and I've gotten to be friends wow. with Chivo Lebeski, the the DP for that film. Um, I love Interstellar because it's a father daughter story, and I have a daughter. Uh, right stuff is amazing. You know that the book, the right stuff, is what really motivated me to be an astronaut or showed me how to become an astronaut. Huh. I was already motivated, but when I read it, I was like, Oh, you're a fighter pilot and you're a test pilot. And, you know, I figured out that, um, there's a documentary called Apollo 11 came out two years ago on the 50th anniversary. It's a CNN film. Todd Douglas Miller was the director. It is spectacular. It's mm -hmm. absolutely one of the best 
movies of all time. Um, watch Apollo. If you like space, watch Apollo 11 and listen to the soundtrack. It's really a good soundtrack. Um, uh, Apollo 13 is a great movie. Uh, it's a real, the, the amazing thing about Apollo 13 is that it's actually a real movie. Um, so yeah, wow. uh, there's some good ones. I'll check those out. So you watch gravity from space. Gravity is about in space. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> in space. And there's this whole, the whole movie is, if I remember correctly, it's, you know, the shuttle comes apart. They're, they're in this disaster yeah. situation. She tries yeah. to, I mean, that, you know, that must've been a little freaky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I watched alien, yeah. uh, 2001, you know, and then I, I remember watching 2001 and then, we floated and then floating through the ISS at night with all the lights off and the computers are all like green and red lights blinking at us. And 2001, the computer turns evil and tries to kill the crew. Oh my God. It's a, yeah. It, anyway, it's a, it, it, we laughed. It was kind of fun to watch space disaster movies in space. Yeah. That's, that's pretty, that's cool. That's like a new way of watching horror movies. <laughs> the dark theater but in space like wa watching horror movies from inside an abandoned motel called right Batman. from it's yeah. exactly yeah from from inside an, an abandoned mansion right where you're alone in so the woods what, right what, what about the right stuff inspired you what was the message that inspired you you know it was these men that were willing to do things that were dangerous and had never been done before and um they were all competitive trying to outdo each other um they wanted to be the fastest guy on base. They wanted to be the highest guy, you know, the guy who'd flown the highest. Um, they were kind of fearless. They were willing to fly anything. Um, and, and it was like, we're going to do this. I, I don't know that, that bravado, there's something about that that is just intuitively appealing to a guy like me. Um, and I think to lots of Americans and lots of humans, a lot of people get that, like, yeah, you need the right stuff. Yeah, you need to go do this. And, and then when you look around the world today, a lot of times it seems like that kind of brash, brave bravery is not promoted at all. It's, it's kind of the opposite of that is what you see a lot of times. Mm. And so there's just something about like the title of the book, Tom Wolfe was the author. Um, my commander and I watched it the night before my first launch. We, we were in crew quarters and had a couple hours. And so I was like, hey, let's watch this Sambo. And we went down, this is just the two of us and put him in. I don't think we watched the whole thing. It's over three hours long, but um, that was a cool movie to watch the night before I launched. And then I brought it with me. I have the DVD still that I flew on the space shuttle and I wanted to give it to Tom Wolf. And I met his publicist and I was going to do it. And unfortunately he passed away. So I, mm. I was too late, but so that that's pretty cool to have a, dvd of the right stuff that flew yeah. on my first shuttle flight that's very cool that's yeah. what a what a like an inspirational token to, to bring with yeah you. so yeah. It, it sounds like you were driven by the this idea of fearlessness and and bravado and adventure and it was you know watching these guys and seeing their courage and, and thinking like yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty cool like that's what we should aspire to is to adventure and to be brave and yeah but you know, there's a difference between bravery and foolishness. Like yeah. for me, I like to analyze the risk. Like, okay, if I'm going to go into space, I might blow up, but I understand that. And we're going to try and prevent me from blowing up. And oh. I know that's the risk. So in other words, like it's a risk that, you know, it's a risk that you actively try and take steps to minimize and mitigate. And then you go and take it. That's the kind of, I like that kind of bravery, which is different than just you know, going bungee jumping or right. wings, wingsuiting through the mountains or it's just some crazy, like there's a difference between bravery and thrill seeking. <laughs> mm -hmm. It sounds like bravery is being analytical and thoughtful and, yeah. you know, calculated about the adventures and the risks you're taking. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's not doing things that are guaranteed, Yeah, but it's doing things that have a risk, but you know there's a risk and you're accepting the risk. You're not just being right. foolish. Right. So what level, like, I, I feel like if I were to go into space, I would become neurotic trying to think, <laughs> okay, you know, or like, like if I, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, but with other risks that I take in life, there's a few calculations I have to make. And I say, okay, I'm making sure, you know, that my seatbelt's buckled and that right. I, 
or if I, do I have my helmet on? Okay, right. Jack, good. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this. Um, I'm, you know, to go, to go skiing are my, are my, are my skis clipped in Is my helmet on whatever it is right. Right. going into space. I mean, I can only imagine the plethora of different variables that have to be in check. Like, so what, how do you find that balance of making sure, okay, every, you know, everything, everything's all set, but without going neurotic to make sure that, uh, everything's in place. It, there's a certain amount of trust. I mean, you, it's funny. One of my colleagues was, does, teaches this class and he, he makes the point that astronauts don't go into space crossing their fingers. They train for everything. They know everything that might happen. They're ready to handle any problem. But the reality is that's complete BS. Because hmm. if the rocket blows up, there's nothing you can do about it. It's going to happen instantly. You can't stop it from happening. You know, if you're in space and there's a small rock that's going to go flying through your spaceship, there's nothing you can do about it. It's wow. just going to happen. So there's some... You know, there is some degree of trust that the people around you who were the lowest bidders, by the way. So all the people who came in with the lowest price contract to do your work, that they did it right. And they do. And the people that work at NASA as contractors are very dedicated. Um, so, you know, there's some level of trust. And there's also some level of, there are some failures that'll kill you that there's nothing you can do about, you know, so you do have to just accept some of those. But luckily, I mean, we've been doing this for 60 years now. People are getting pretty good at making spaceships and yeah. they blow up sometimes, but not that often. So um, if you know, the risk, the risks are not what they were. If only we could all have that same equanimity going through life. You know, it, it sounds like you have this mindset of, look, I've assessed what I can assess. I've analyzed what I can analyze. And there's 1% that I just you know, there's 1% risk and I have to just take right. that risk because I've accounted right. for everything that can be accounted for. And it's worth doing and huh. going on the international space station benefits all of humanity. It's right. Americans and Russians working together when there's nowhere else that we work together. It's there's, there's good, right? Yeah. Um, right. I could go wingsuiting and that would be fun, but is it worth, you know, orphaning my kids over that? So you, you right. kind of have to decide and everybody is going to have a different decision. Everybody's going to have a different answer. What's worth it? What level of worth risk is worth it or not? That's something that everybody has to pick on their own. And businesses have to do this too. I mean, you know, risk analysis is, uh, is something that businesses have to do. I, I just, <laughs> I just did a, a charity poker game. I've never played mm -hmm. poker since I was like 12 years old. And, um, so I, I was like trying to learn how to play because I didn't know. And uh, anyway, I won the thing. I was super excited. Wow. I won a, wow. did it, it, all, all the money went to charity, but it was really cool. But in poker, it's you're going, what are the odds? What are the odds? And, um, you know, if you go all in with a pair of aces, that's risky, but it's not the riskiest thing. You know, you, you have a good chance of winning. If you go in all, all in with a three and a five of different suits, you know, that, that's just crazy. So, and that's like life, you know, some, some things are risky, but the benefits are pretty good. Um, some things are really risky and there's no benefit. So why are you taking it? Um, some things are not very risky, but there's not much benefit. And so you have to kind of, I, I teach a whole cons like motivational speech about risk management. Um, but you could, if you can, the, the most important thing is just be deliberate about it. Understand what you're doing. When you drive a car, there's a risk. In Houston, if you drive a car anytime, there's a risk because there's so much traffic. If you drive a car on Friday or Saturday night, it's crazy, man. The people are out there, they're going 100 miles an hour. I think the policemen have just stopped policing. There, there are no more policemen um, for a lot of reasons that we've all seen. And so, like, it's really dangerous driving around on Friday and Saturday nights. So, you just have to kind of accept that risk or hopefully be deliberate about accepting the risk and knowing whether it's worth it. So, with yeah. driving a car, it's like, okay, there's a one in 10,000 chance something happens. It's worth it because I got to go to work. And this is right. so with going into space, there's a one in whatever chance that the thing just blows up, but right. you're not wingsuiting down the side of a mountain for fun. You're on a right. mission for humanity and it doesn't right. come with no risk. Interesting. Yeah. That's um, my thought. Mountain climbing is not a good friend of mine. I've got his book right here. Robert Mads Anderson is his name. He's his book is called Nine Lives. My computer is sitting on it right now. Well, good friend of mine. I just had him on my podcast this week. Um, 
he's climbed all seven summits multiple times. He's been up Everest nine times. He's only summited once, but he's been to Everest nine times. And um, it's just really fascinating to talk to those guys about risk because, you know, it's the ultimate risk analysis. Some people who are like, they got peak fever, they're going no matter what. Those are the guys that die. The ones who are willing to get almost there and turn around are the ones who usually don't die. But but mountain climbing is a whole nother level of risk. I mean, that's a dangerous, serious mountain climbing. I mean, you can walk up Pikes Peak or whatever. That's not too bad. But um, the serious, crazy mountain climbing is very dangerous. So what do you think about that? Because, you know, the, the comment you made about space travel is that there is a risk, um, but it's worth it because of what you're contributing. But if you're going up a mountain, it's not the same contribution to humanity. So do you... Would you bucket yeah. that with like wing wingsuiting or? It, it depends. I had a good friend of mine who just loved wingsuiting. He couldn't stop wingsuiting um, and he died. <laughs> he, you know, uh, that's a whole nother level of risk. I mean, if you do that, if you do the mountain valley wingsuiting, you, you're going to die. That, that's something that, that it's really, really dangerous. If you just jump out of an airplane and wingsuit around, that's cool. That's not, that's okay. But, um, you know, mountain climbing is not that level of danger, but I'm not gonna, it's not my place to judge them. I, I think mountain climbing people have a very unique personality. I love being in the mountains. I love camping. I love that kind of thing. Um, and if, if the benefit is they get the recharging of being on top of the mountain and look at the earth, that's pr super profound. And like why life, that you just sit around and watch Netflix is not a life worth living. So I, I can, I could definitely understand, um, you know, why they're doing that, but yeah. as long as they're, as long as they're accepting the risk deliberately, they understand what it is, they're going to, you know, be smart about it and whatever, you know, if you're, if you're just careless about it, or if you just want to, if you, if you want to climb Mount Everest, that's great. If you want to tell other people that you climbed Mount Everest, that's a different motivation and, you know, you just have to understand your motivations. But I, I, I can understand where mountain climbers come. I mean, I look, I flew rockets. For, I was telling my buddy got a motorcycle, and I'm like, dude, be careful. You're gonna. I, I worked in the ER as part of my astronaut training, and I saw a lot of motorcycle victims were really beneficial for me as a student because I got to learn all about medical conditions. It was really bad for them. But um, you know, we're driving a motorcycle. There's a certain amount of risk that comes with that. That's much more dangerous than driving a car. And I told him, I said, yeah, that's dangerous. And he was like, dude, you ride rockets for a living. What are you talk, talking about? And I was like, you're right. <laughs> who, who am I to tell you not to ride a motorcycle? Um, so I guess the point is, you know, risk is different for everybody. What, what's worth it is different for everybody. Um, uh, for some people, it makes sense to ride motorcycles. If that's what you need to do, then do it. Right. Just, just dress for it and, you know, be careful and whatever. Um, but if you're just doing it and you haven't really thought through it and you got a wife and kids and you know, that maybe that's not the smartest thing to do. So it just depends on the person. I'll, I guess all I'm really saying is just be deliberate about it and, and have your yeah. eyes wide open. It sounds like it's about being thoughtful. And if your risk tolerance is high or low, that that's your prerogative, right. just knowing, understanding the risk and then making a decision based on your understanding. Exactly. Exactly. Have you, have you heard of uh, Alex Honnold, you know, the, the free climber, the guy who, who climbed up Yosemite with no rope, nothing. Oh, the solo guy. Yeah. 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 I, I, the movie is amazing. That's yeah. an incredible documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Fr free yeah. solo. He scales this 3000 foot sheer rock in Yosemite with no rope. Any movement, you know, he'd fall yeah. to his death. That, that, I mean, that is on one extreme, although I think he's so good that, that he feels that he's in control. You know, Robert Mads Anderson and I had this conversation. I was like, you know, Robert, there's some things that you do that you're going to die if you do it enough. And he said, no, no, no. He about, we were talking about him specifically. He said, he is really in control. And the thing is, if you are, if you are a hundred percent focused and you know what you're doing and you're paying attention, then that's not when you're going to die. When you're going to die is when you get careless. So as a fighter pilot, if you're flying at low altitude through the mountains and you're paying attention to what's going on, you're not going to hit the ground. It's when there's other airplanes around and you're checking six and you're not looking what you're doing. And then you get distracted. I've got, I need 
all my fingers and a few toes to tell all the all the times I almost died um, well. in an airplane. And so I think there's something to that. If you if you're real if you're driving and you're paying attention, and even if it's at night and you're checking six to see the guy going 100 miles an hour, you can be pretty safe. It's when you get distracted that you're probably going to have a car crash. And that's that's true about even a lot of these dangerous things. Right. So it's really about your attention more than anything else. And if you uh, often like to me, flying a, a, a jet seems dangerous, but if you're an expert at it and you have complete control, it's not. And, and if you're, if Alex Honnold is an expert climber, maybe it's not as dangerous. Although I would still bet if he does that enough, he's going to die. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that, that was my, that was when I watched the movie, I was like, you know, I'm not saying he has a death wish, but you can't but it's, do that. It, you it's can't like, do that multiple times and, and there's things out of his control right he, he doesn't mm-hmm. like there's no way he can control for every single hold on the, the, the rock breaks right yeah. or you or you lose concentrate you know like like the fbi likes to say um we need to be right 100 percent of the time the terrorists only have to be right once and so yeah when you're climbing solo free solo you have to be right 100 percent of the time yeah absolutely but it's not only El Capitan. If you're climbing 40 feet, yeah, like 40 feet can just barely kill you. 3,000 feet will definitely kill you, but 40 feet can just barely kill you. That's what we used to say in airplane. Like if you're flying a Cessna, hmm. you know, and the, F6, the F-16 can kill you. The F-16 can kill you for sure, no doubt. Now Cessna, that thing can just barely kill you. You know, the, it's a joke being that it doesn't matter what airplane you're flying, they're all dangerous <laughs> and any anywhere on the spectrum of being killed is being killed so you're dead right <laughs> being barely killed is still being killed yeah it's like graduating from medical school they if you're last in your class they call you doctor yeah yeah um you you talked about gaining humility from being in space could you talk about that it sounds like being up there having yeah. this you know universal perspective and seeing the world from up there change your mindset of what's important and and how you think about global relations and national relations and yeah what what was that like looking up there looking down at the world and and what what went through your head and how did your mindset change change so when you look out and you see the planet and that's my planet over there. And here I am not on the planet. That's a profound moment. And it's, it just makes you realize that every human that's ever been is from there. Um, and it, it make it, what it did for me is it, I'm not impressed by celebrity, <laughs> um, or titles or things like that. It's just hard to get impressed by it. It's also hard to get too high about something or too low about something because you know the earth's been here for a billion years. It's going to be here for a billion more or more. And, um, you know, in the big scheme of things, our problems are just not that important. Now, there are some problems that are really big deals, um, but uh, many of the daily concerns that we have are just not, they're not eternal kind of concerns. And so I think being in space helped me to, um, I guess, put me in my place a little bit, which is good. I think that's a good thing. Oh, so, so, so it gives you equanimity, helps you see more, more, you know, bigger picture that, that maybe things aren't, some things aren't as important. Some things are, but yeah. um, so it kind of, kind of gives you a sense of like, you know, we're all from this planet. We're all connected. Right. Like no hundred percent. Yeah. Hey everybody that's ever been is from the planet and you know in the hollywood movies when the aliens come there's never like you know different countries of aliens that are fighting each other it's always you know humans and them and and which is an interesting perspective that we certainly don't have there's like two over 200 countries and um so it the perspective was very good yeah and 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 it's, it sounds specifically like that that helped you see that we're all, we're all equal or, or, you know, that, that. Yeah. We're all humans on the same spaceship earth, you know, flying through space. Um, 
my crewmate Samantha Cristoforetti said that we should be we should treat it as crew members and not just as passengers, which is a pretty cool quote, I thought. Hmm. Um, like treating Earth as that, you mean, or? Yeah, in other words, take some ownership and take care of it, leave huh. it a better place. You know, the don't pollute if you can. No. Treat your neighbors well. If you're a crewmate on a ship, there are certain standards of behavior. You want to take care of the ship. You know, like that's that's different than just being a passenger on a carnival ship where you're like partying and you got people to serve you and stuff. Um, when you are a crew member, you're the guy serving others. And so you have to take care of, take care of everything. That's a great mentality. You know, like I'm a, I'm crew, I'm a crewmate on spaceship earth because we really are, we're on a flight around the sun. The sun's on a flight around the galaxy. It's pretty cool. Actually, we're flying through space. Yeah. So the idea is like, we're, you know, day to day people are on earth, not thinking that it's even a planet going about their life, but then being. Right in a spaceship above earth, you know, you're in a spaceship where you're one of 20 or however many people, and you have to make sure this thing's working and you have a job and you're looking yeah. at the earth thinking, wait, the earth isn't so different. The earth is like this spaceship. We all have a shared responsibility to, yeah. to keep this intact and keep it healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, six, there were six of us on the ISS. One night we were having dinner on the Russian segment and I was like, you know what guys, there's six of us up here and they had a hatch and the Russians have a hatch. I, I looked out, I was like, look down there. There's over 6 billion people down there and there's six of us. We're one in a billion more. We're one in more than a billion. Oh. And um, so that was kind of a profound moment. Like we are really lucky. We need to use what we've been given to, you know, share that philosophy out there. Yeah. Wow. What was, you know, you, you talk about some of the, the, the great parts of being in space and photography, making films. What was, your, you know, your least favorite part about being up there? There, there weren't a lot of bad parts about being there. Um, it, being away from your family yeah. was bad. The, I think the whole training, space flight, it was years of being apart from my family and that, that was not healthy at all. Um, mm -hmm. But um, uh, even the bad things were not that bad. I mean, sometimes crewmates don't get along. My expedition 43 crew was great. I was very lucky. I was there with Scott Kelly and Gennady Padalka and Samantha and Anton and Misha. We had, we had a good crew. We're still friends to this day. In fact, Gennady and I have done, he, he was on my movie, One More Orbit, like I said, and Samantha and Anton were both over at my house recently. And so I stay in touch with these guys. Yeah. Um, it was good. Nice. So, so I mean, overall, not, not a lot that wasn't, Good. It must, you know, you mentioned looking at the earth and having a change of perspective. I would imagine being up there for some people changed their whole view of reality of the universe and where, where we come from, what, what else is out there. Um, yeah. You know, I, um, I'm a Christian. I was a, before my flight, after my flight, I, I think the big change for me was I'm, I'm less of a black and white guy. Hmm. Um, when you're young, it's very easy to be black and white and, you know, we're right. And everybody else is wrong. And, I'm, I have a lot more open mind now. Um, yeah, I'm here in the Middle East. I, I had dinner today with uh, some Saudis, some Emiratis and a Persian, you know, Iranian person. And it was great. It was real. And some Europeans, a few different Europeans I was hanging out with and the Indian Japanese guy. So th this was, and another Middle Eastern guy. So these were all the people I hung out with and had meetings with today. Um, and they're great. I get along with all of them. They're, they're fine. They're people, right? Yeah. Um, governments are not all great. <laughs> yeah. Governments off the gov the job of governments is often to keep itself in power. And, you know, get, once you get power, then you end up doing bad things. And so, um, but as far as the people go, you know, people really are people. Um, when you, when you start adding religion and, and politics and in the mix, then they, then bad things start to happen. But mm. just at the human level, everybody wants the same thing. They want to make money so they can have a house and give their kids opportunities and not have, nobody wants wars. The governments want wars, uh, but people don't. Um, so that it's kind of an interesting perspective, I guess, that I've gotten. That the idea that all people are for the most part, good. And we all want the same thing. We all want love and relationships and to be happy. Yeah. And, to be, 
and where you run into conflict is with governments. So like, you know, these entities that want to stay in power. Yeah. The self-licking ice cream cone is the purpose of government is to stay in power. Even democracies, like the purpose of bureaucracy is to get more money and more people and to keep itself in power. Um, What what does that mean, self-licking ice cream cone? The purpose of the thing is to keep itself going. Perpetuate Um, itself, gotcha. Right, like to perpetuate itself, exactly. Yeah, I wanted to ask, you mentioned the rights, you know, you, you're younger, you watch this movie, The Right Stuff. You see these guys that you really admire. They're brave, they're courageous, they're going on this mission. And, mm-hmm. and, and then that sparks this courage in yourself. Was, um, the, what, what did, did the mission, was, was there a, a goal you had of, you know, I want to go to space to contribute humanity in such a way? Is it, was it that the, the, inspiration for discovery or for new insights or what about you know because there's there's a lot of someone else could watch that movie and say wow i really want to you know be an adventure explorer and and pursue something else was there something about the mission of space that that you know you wanted to to deliver a certain value to people or yeah well my so i was a pilot i was a shuttle pilot and our job back in the 2000s was to build the space station. So that was a pretty cool mission. It was like, there's this international space station. You gotta fly up in a rocket and assemble pieces and parts and outfit it from the inside and then come back safely to earth. And that was just a really cool mission. It was very specific. You knew what you're doing. Everybody knew what their missions were. Once we got the station built and people started living on it permanently, um, that mission was cool too, but it was very different. It was your job is to keep the station going and your job is to do science, you know, like scientists and all these experiments. I'm not a scientist, I'm just a fighter pilot. So, and we had 250 different experiments. Even if you are a scientist, let's say you're a PhD in biochemistry, you know, with a lady named Kate Rubens is a famous PhD. Well, I think she did an experiment where she was sequencing genes, but the other 249 experiments were not in her PhD. So she had to learn other things, right? So every astronaut is doing stuff that's not in their expertise. 99% of the time, which I loved about the job, actually, it's very flexible, diverse, you know, every day is something different um, job. Wow. So you, you were part of the construction of the space station. I finished building it. My first flight SCS-130 was the final ISS construction mission. Wow. Yeah, we, we brought up node three in the cupola and that was the last official assembly flight. Now, the Russians still have a module they're going to bring up. Um, one of the shuttle flights left behind a storage module. So that kind of became a new module. I mean, there's, you know, over the 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 year life of the ISS, it's going to change. A beam, beam module got launched a couple of years ago, but um, we were the last official of the construction phase. We were the final flight. Wow. That's incredible. What was it like returning to earth, returning to gravity not just the physical weight of it, but the orientation in space, you're in this three-dimensional world where yeah. any direction is the same as any other direction. So right. how, how, I can't even fathom orienting to that where you're in a ship where there, there's no real up or down, right? It's absolutely. So it was um, very dizzy, <laughs> very disorienting. You know, I, I was able to walk around. I was able to do everything. But after 200 days in space, I didn't want to. I didn't want to walk. Whenever I was walking, I wanted to have a handrail that I could hold on to or somebody next to me. Um, They made me lay down on my stomach and then stand up as fast as I could and close my eyes and walk one foot in front of the other. And so they do a lot of torture, but um, I was able to do it all. It just wasn't fun. This is when you got back or when you were? When, When I got back to Earth, yeah. But what, when you were in space, what was that like orienting to zero gravity? Right. When I, so I'm sorry, when going uphill, it's very disorienting to the first chapter of my first book. And I've got a couple chapters in my second book where I talk about different aspects of this. Um, the big thing for me was pain. Like I had an awful headache and I, my head hurt. My brain, my vestibular system was freaking out. My brain was like, what's happening here? And you know, you could only move your head about this fast. You could just barely turn around. If you did this, I would have thrown up right away. Like you, wow. you just can't move your head very, very quickly. So, yeah, that was the big thing for me. So nausea, but, but 
and then and but then you had to get accustomed to moving sort of in a how did you get used to not being an up down you know you're, you're not well you so we label this is up this is down this is right this is left and and that allows you to orient yourself if you didn't have a, a standard you know a, a, an agreed upon um what's the word i'm thinking of not standard an agreed upon protocol i guess yeah. or what is up and down it would have been super confusing but so I'm used to seeing the ISS in a certain orientation. Whenever you'd flip around to do something, it was really disorienting. So you had to flip back around the right side up or it was confusing. And then did you, and then you, when you got up there, you got headaches. Well, and coming back, you were saying you had to use a rail and they made you do exercises. Where did you get, did it affect your health at all? It sounds like you were working out a couple hours a day. So that probably helped. Yeah. My, my exercise, I was able to come back to earth and I had lost 0.0% of my bone density. So that wow. was it was pretty amazing. The doctors were amazed because of all the exercise I did. Um, but the, uh, uh, the, another pain was I grew, I grew like five centimeters. I grew two inches. So I was finally six feet tall in space. But then as soon as you get back to earth, gravity shrinks you down again. So I was back to five ten. Um, so that was, that was part of it. The biggest health thing is cancer and, and, uh, all that radiation I got. I've had after both my flights, I had skin cancer. So that's the, that's the big concern for me. Wow. That's, that's scary. And I hope you're, yeah, yeah. I, I'm okay. They took care of it. So that's not a problem, but, it, but uh, it'll be a problem my whole life. I have to go into the, de the dermatologist every six months and, you know, just check it out. But what can you do? You know, right. it, it could be from earth. It's not necessarily from space, but then again, I got like, lots of radiation and, and more than that, I've got radiation that doesn't exist on earth. These mm -hmm. galactic cosmic rays, very high energy particles that they, they can exist on earth because there's air and the air molecules would, uh, they would hit it and flash into, into lower energy particles. So, mm. um, just being in space is kind of a unique radiation environment. And this, this goes into what you said earlier about calculated risk. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, really great talking to you. I'm a big fan of yours. Um, <laughs> well, thanks, Jake. This was fun. So do you, do you have any affiliation? I probably know this, but do you have any affiliation with SpaceX? Um, I don't. Mm -mm. I no, I had a, I, I'm really not working for any company, which is actually kind of nice because I can do podcasts. I can say whatever I want. It's just yeah. my thoughts. You know, I don't, I'm not beholden to anybody. Um, not to say that I wouldn't or, you know, join a board is probably the best way for me to do that. But, um, yeah, right now. Yeah. Cause I know own. there's, I mean, there's, cause I mean, for the longest time, right. Space was predominantly a government. There's NASA, there's Russia. And now there's, now there's space. Now there's a lot. And there's a lot. other, other. So where, where, where do you see that going? Like, what is your take on blue origin on SpaceX, do you, so do you think that they will take the spot of NASA as being the leading, you know, the frontier yeah. of travel? Being able to raise tax money is a pretty powerful thing. Um, I hmm. think they are much more innovative and they can move much more quicker than the government can. Uh, but in the long term, NASA can employ a lot of people and generate a lot of resources to do a lot of things. Um, but I, you know, private companies are going to have a bigger and bigger role. I think SpaceX is way ahead of Blue Origin. They've just done so much, and Blue Origin is still kind of hasn't really done anything yet, honestly. But in the long run, they have an engine, the BE4 engine. They've got a couple different rockets they're building. It. Blue Origin is kind of like the, the tortoise and the hare, you know, SpaceX is the hare. And I think in the long run, Blue Origin is, is definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah. I think they have slightly different missions, like Blue Origin's trying to ship people around and SpaceX is more commercial, if, if, I'm, yeah. if I'm right. Um, you know, one other question I, I do want to ask, and I, I'll, I'll, we'll wrap, we can wrap up at the top of the hour, but um, so, and this is, so being out there, do you, and your crewmates, you know, you guys look down, you see the earth. Do you, do you also look up and say, um, cause that, that's gotta give you a perspective. No other 
astrophysicist could can possibly have and so i made a movie last year called cosmic perspective and it's yeah. about that exact thing um mm. it's it what it's it's about the perspective that space photography has given us so yeah apollo and iss astronauts and telescopes and hubble and probes we've sent to mars and jupiter all of this space photography has just changed our mind about everything um so i actually i'm i made a short film out of it i'm hoping to turn it into a series i want to you know make that like an eight part docu-series kind of thing um but i yeah i i think that's i find that subject fascinating is how those image those images and in, in looking out and how that's changed just everybody's opinion in daily life. So what's the take on the, on the space station? What's the general consensus? Are there aliens or is there, not? Is there life out there? Yeah. So my podcast that dropped today is a guy named Lou Elizondo. He's been one of the two main guys in the whole UFO UAP uh, documentaries. And he worked at the Pentagon and stuff. And I wrote a chapter about, aliens in my, in how to astronaut. Um, the, the bottom line is there's billions of planets. So you'd think there's life out there. Um, but I, I think life is so complicated. Somebody needs to make it. I don't think life would just happen randomly on its own. And I say that from a scientific point of view, not a religious point of view. I mean, this, my Omega watch would not just make itself. And it's if you gave it a billion years, if you put all the parts there for a billion years, they would never get assembled into what I have on my wrist. Yeah. And um, a, a single cell basic life organism is infinitely more complicated than a, a megawatch. So there's lots of planets. You'd think there'd be life. Personally, I don't think there's life unless somebody actually makes it or gets it started somehow. Can, can I ask you just on, on that that verb that verb you're using, make? So I, I I agree with you that life is complex. We don't we certainly don't know exactly how it's made. There seems to be you know it seems to be different than just the way that other natural things are made. But this right. verb of you know this verb make like this implication that that I'll create. That, well, the, this, this implication that we possess as human beings, the intelligence to know the sort of being that could create something like, couldn't, couldn't we also say, look, the single celled organisms life is so insanely complex that clearly it came about in, in a different way than, you know, we're not just putting bread in the toaster and then it comes out as toast. Like this is really complex something made it in the sense that it's, it looks designed, but um, we don't have the slightest grasp of everything in the universe. And, and isn't it presumptuous for us to say that we know there's this, you know, entity that, that has a consciousness and a human sort of, you know, you know what I mean? Um, well, we, an we anthropomorphize everything. So we, right, right, we right. always, we always make things human-like um right. but i guess like make in in the general sense I, I would agree with but i yeah i just think it's assuming a lot to to think that we could possibly know that right well jean-paul sartre je pense donc je suis right I, I think therefore i am so just the existence of life would point to a creator just because so my son was a chemical engineer and I asked him, I was like, how many molecules are in a cell? And he told me somewhere between 2 million and 2 trillion um, molecules make up a cell. Depends yeah. on how complicated the cell is. So for like millions or billions or trillions of molecules to suddenly arrange themselves in the right form. I was a math major, right? The odds of that are zero. Yeah. So something's going on that we have no idea. I'm not, I'm not saying somebody went, waved a magic wand and said, poof, and all of a sudden there was a tiger. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But just for physics. Yeah. Something's happening. Like, something's happening beyond our comprehension. Just for all these subatomic particles and the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force and dark, we don't even know what dark matter is, but most of the universe is made of dark matter and dark energy and my garage never cleans itself without me going out and adding some order to this mess. Right. And yeah. so that's just the way the universe right. works is th things don't assemble themselves into, they, they can for short periods of time, but the difference between a, a, a 
jar of water and an amoeba is infinite, mm -hmm. right? There's so much difference between just chemicals and a living thing. Right. Um, so, so there has to be some sort of what we consider intention, but then, but then I, what created that, right? I mean, there's this right. whole literally universe of right. causality or of creation that we can't comprehend. And if we were to somebody who, who made God, right. Right. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. If I, if I knew I'd write a book about it, but yeah, well, if you don't know, we're, we're, <laughs> it's, right. but it's cool to think about it. And, um, yeah. anyway, yeah. E Elon Musk has this great quote and, um, I'll let, I'll let you go. I, he, I need to, I, I, he, uh, you know, you know, the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. My Samantha was really a big fan of that. And when I was on expedition 42, that was, our poster was based on that. Yeah. 42. Right. So he, oh, I wish I could find it, but he, so he basically says that, um, you know, he has the, his, his view of the meaning of life is, is the Douglas Adams view that he thinks that we, we really need to be trying to get closer to asking the right question. We don't even know what the question is and the way to get the question is to expand human consciousness and to expand human consciousness. You know, you have to venture out to the stars and to Mars. So part of his initiative of, of going to Mars is to, is to, be able to equip humanity with asking better questions. That's a great, you know, a lot of times you're not asking the right question. I like that basic premise. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that it's not, you know, that we're not searching for the answer. We're, we're, we're searching for the question. Right. Um, that's a, that's a good that way like, to, like how arrogant okay. it is to say, what is the meaning? And that's what the, the, the book's about is like, how, how arrogant is it to say, what is the meaning of life? You don't even know what you're talking about. We need to get closer um, to asking uh, the right question. Anyway, so you said you, you have a poster of that book? Every crew has their own like unofficial poster. Um, on 130, it was based on some movie. God, I forgot the name of the movie. On 43, it was based on Metropolis, the by the Fritz Lang movie from, from 100 years ago, like the first science fiction movie. Um, and our 42 poster was based on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You can find it. Just Google it. You know, Expedition 42 crew poster. Uh, you'll it should pop up. Okay. Um, I will. I'll look for it. All right. Uh, well, thanks so much. This was great. This is cool, man. This is a good conversation. Thanks for having me, Jake. Sorry I was a few minutes late, but no worries. Th thanks for your time. I know you've got a lot going on. So yeah, um, yeah, really a really a, a big fan of yours. Um, and you know, I, I guess I didn't get to say this, but I, you know, you, I, I think you're a hero, and I think that it's incredible what you've done. Um, your comment about the right stuff and we don't have a lot of that these days and what people perceive or think is courage today is is really not and taking calculated lit risks to further you know the knowledge of humanity um it's really courageous so so thank you <laughs> well thanks for having me on i appreciate that and hopefully uh some folks get inspired to do some cool things yeah all right terry all right, jake thanks Talk to you See soon. you later. Bye-bye.